Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter six. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Jesus possesses only divine personhood. Jesus does not possess human creature personhood. He shares his divine intellect and his divine will with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, if each of the persons of the Holy Trinity had separate intellects and separate wills, there would exist three separate little g gods, not one God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or I came from the Father, or he who sees me sees him who sent me. In the Nicene Creed, we say for us men and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. The motherhood of Mary includes everything that natural motherhood normally includes. She conceived and gave birth to a flesh and blood man, Jesus of Nazareth, who actually lived and died in actual human history. But on the other hand, Mary's Motherhood, like that of all mothers, entails a relationship to a person and not simply to a nature. So it's not enough then to claim that Mary is the mother of Jesus' human nature. The connection between persons, between parent and child, is too essential to be left out of the picture. So this is where things turn to the supernatural. Jesus is not a human person, but a divine person person. And that's the hypostatic union. Jesus is the son of God, begotten of the father before all ages and consubstantial with the father. The person to person relationship between Mary and Jesus is that of a human mother and a divine son. Thus Mary's title, Mary, mother of God. The title Theotokos, God bearer, is the highest honor of all God's created creatures. Mary is the sole individual chosen by God for the mission of divine motherhood. Every other believer without exception is adopted by grace to become a sibling of Jesus, a younger brother or sister of Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn among many brothers, says Paul in Romans 8. But Mary is the one believer who Jesus can address with the words, woman, behold your son. Mary is a human mother of a divine son. He who his mighty has done great things for me, she says in her Magnificat. And the greatest thing, the greatest thing that God did for her was to give her the divine motherhood. Now, in the Old Testament, the new is concealed and in the new, the old is revealed. So was this anything about this in the Old Testament? Yes. And listen carefully. Moses at the burning bush. Moses said to God, he he comes upon God, a, a bush is on fire and God's going to reveal to him his very name. What is his name? What if the people say to me, Lord, what is your name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, tell them, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel that I am has sent me to you. Well, this bush that was so intriguing, he took his sandals off and got closer, but couldn't look. The bush was burning, yet it was not being consumed. And St. Gregory, the Bishop of Nyssa, who made great contributions to the doctrine of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed, said, spiritually speaking, in Catholic sense of scripture, spiritually speaking, in the spiritual sense of sacred scripture, this passage is related to the divine maternity of Mary what we just talked about, what was prefigured, this is Gregory of Nyssa's words, what was prefigured at that time in the flame of the bush was openly manifested in the mystery of the virgin. Once 
an interval of time had passed. Just as on the mountain the bush burned but was not consumed, so also the virgin gave birth to light and was not corrupted. Nor should you consider the comparison to the bush to be embarrassing, for it prefigured the God-bearing body of the virgin. Mary, the humble maiden of Nazareth, is the bush set ablaze with divine fire, the same fire that appears throughout salvation history when God manifests his glory to his people. When the Lord took his seat on Mount Sinai at that marriage we talked about in Exodus 19, the mountaintop burned, burned with fire and smoke like a kiln. And the Lord came down in a thick cloud upon the tabernacle in the wilderness, and the cloud was aflame with fire. If Mary's child is a divine child and the divine presence is revealed, filled in fire, then it seems beautifully fitting to see the burning bush as a figure of Mary's divine maternity. She bears the fire of God in her heart, in her womb, of her being. There is no ordinary fire. It's a kind of fire. It's not like an ordinary fire, I'm sorry, that consumes and reduces things to ash. No, this is a fire of the glory of God. So in Exodus 31, when Bezalel is filled with the spirit of God and given divine ability and intelligence, and knowledge to craft what Moses had seen on the mountaintop to craft it perfectly. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is Mary's tribe and Jesus's tribe. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God, and he's to make the Ark of the Covenant. Bezalel, tribe Judah, filled with the Spirit, created the Ark, crafted the Ark. What did the Ark hold? The true presence of God. On top is the mercy seat. Anywhere that Ark went, they took it with because it had the true presence of God. And there was a cloud by day leading them over the ark, and at night there was a pillar of fire. The glory cloud overshadows Virgin Mary, who's full of grace. The fire of the true presence of God within her does not burn up or consume her or compromise her virginity. Her pure virginal womb becomes a new ark, a new holding place, a new tabernacle, a new tent for the true presence of God. And again at Pentecost, the fire comes over her. Another conception is happening, the conception of the church. Two times in scripture, the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary in scripture. Column of fire, or column of cloud and pillar of fire. The Holy Spirit overshadows her, the cloud. The Holy Spirit has a flame of fire on Pentecost above her head, a pillar of fire. The permanent glory of the new covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. And this is the glory of the Lord. When God sets creatures alight with his glory and they are engulfed in his undying Trinitarian life, that they receive the permanent glory of the new covenant, an everlasting covenant. Baptized men and women become deified rather than diminished in this holy furnace of infinite being within their own human temples. It's amazing. The permanent glory of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit has been given us, says Paul. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Catechism 257, O blessed light, O Trinity, and first unity. God is eternal blessedness, undying life, unfading light. God is love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God freely wills to communicate the glory of his blessed life. Such is the plan of his loving kindness conceived by the Father before the foundation of the world in his beloved son. He destined us in love to be his sons and daughters and to be conformed to the image of his son through the spirit of sonship. This is a plan. This 
plan is a grace, a grace which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, stemming immediately from Trinitarian love. It unfolds the work of creation, the whole history of salvation after the fall, and the missions of the Son and the Spirit, which are continued in the mission of the church. The most Holy Trinity gives the baptized sanctifying grace, the grace of justification, enabling them to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him through the theological virtues. That's faith, hope, and love. Giving them the power to live and act under the prompting of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, allowing them to grow in goodness through the moral virtues. Thus, the whole organism of the Christian's supernatural life has its roots in baptism. Baptism is so important. On Pentecost Day, Catechism 732, the Holy Trinity was revealed. Since that day, since Pentecost Day, the kingdom announced by Christ has been open to those who believe in him in the humility of the flesh and in faith. They already share in the communion of the Holy Trinity. By his coming, which never ceases, the Holy Spirit causes the world to enter into the last days. The time of the church, the kingdom, already inherited, though not yet consummated. We have seen the true light. We have received the heavenly spirit. We have found the true faith. We adore the invisible trinity who has saved us. Reason, reason now tells us that God must be unchanging. God must be immovable. Faith tells us that the father goes out of himself into the son and the son returns into the father and brings forth the spirit in the process. And far from being immovable, God's a fountain of love. A fountain is fluid. And and Paul said last week that God's love in, in Romans 5 has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. There's a fluidity there to pouring, the pouring of God's love. If God's love has been poured, then there must have been a receptacle, something to receive God's love. So this speaks to our receptivity. How receptive are you to the love of God? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Now, God's work is creating and he's still creating. He's creating all the time. He's creating new relationships. He's healing things. He's, he's recreating. He helps order the chaos of our lives. And Jesus' work is redeeming, and he's still redeeming. He's, he's the redeemer, and he continues to redeem souls constantly. And he tells us in the final commission to go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And the Holy Spirit's work is to sanctify. He's called the sanctifier. His gifts make us holy, sanctified, set apart, chosen, set apart, made holy as God is holy, everlasting and ongoing until the end of the age. He's always sanctifying and he's sanctifying through the sacraments. And there's grace in every single sacrament of the church, all seven of them. Now, Romans 6 says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, says Paul. We have reconciliation. We know we can keep sinning and keep going to confession and keep getting forgiven. How can we who died to sin still live in sin? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were baptized another one of the sacraments. Before we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead. By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have an anointing of the sick when we're ready to die, another sacrament where we can be filled with grace. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
hope of the resurrection of the dead. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in to help sanctify us. There is a real call to holiness for all baptized persons, a real, true, universal call for all people to be holy. And that's the Holy Spirit's job to help us with that, the sanctifier, to make us holy, to work in us. And wherever the Holy Spirit is, so is the Trinity. And his gifts help make us holy as God is holy, everlasting, and ongoing until the end of the age. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Frequent reception of the sacrament fills us with grace, more grace, and more grace, and more grace, and more grace. Don't yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Grace is the new wedding gift. Remember the old first wedding gift at Sinai was the law. Moses brought down the law. The new wedding gift is grace poured out from Jesus Christ. Grace, 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 grace upon grace. We have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. The new covenant wedding gift from God, love, life, abundance of the Trinity living in us. Jesus told us about this in John 15. Jesus said, when the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, even the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. And you also are witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you are asking, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, Jesus said to his apostles, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convince the world of sin. You see, my friends, the Holy Spirit is a convictor. He convinces us when we are not holy. He convinces us. He convicts us to get to confession, to use the grace of the sacraments. He will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler of this world? Paul told the Ephesians, the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's that? John 12, the judgment is upon this world. Now the prince of the world will be cast out. John 14, I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of the world is coming and he has no claim on me, but I do exactly what the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. And John 16, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. That's why in that one image of the Trinity, God the Father is handing over that rod of authority to the Holy Spirit. He won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, says Jesus. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will take what is Jesus Christ and declare it to us. He wants us to be sanctified. He wants us to be holy. What is holy? Only God is holy. And we are holy to the extent that God lives in our souls. God the Trinity. God is holy because he's whole, perfect, sound, blessed, hallowed, sacred, complete, possessing integrity, goodness, and righteousness. God possesses these qualities by his very nature. We possess them only by sanctifying grace, which is the life of God within us and us partaking in it. We have God's life in us when the Trinity dwells in us. Baptism removes the stain of original sin we inherited from our parents. It makes us temples of the Holy Spirit, but wherever the Holy Spirit dwells, there also dwell the Father and the Son. Jesus answered him, if a man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's what we want, the whole Trinity abiding in our souls, making us holy. Grace is not God. It is God's life within us. It is our participation in God's life, our participation in the inner life of the Trinity. Sanctifying grace restores the holiness and justice lost by Adam and Eve. Sanctifying grace makes us holy. It sanctifies us as were Adam and Eve before their fall from God's grace. And sanctification is the process of being sanctified or made holy. For sin will have no dominion over you, says Paul. You are not under the law. You are under grace. What a gift. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. But do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Choice is yours. Who are you a slave to? Who do you obey? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But then what did you get in return? What did you get in return for your sin from the things of which you are now ashamed? What return have you got from sin in your life? Have you ever been trapped in sin, embroiled in sin, in bondage of sin? What return did you get from it? Immediate pleasure, maybe, probably. Long-term shame, isolation, secrecy, depression, anxiety. What did you get in return from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, which is eternal life for the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is great news, my friends. That's really, really good news. The permanent glory of the new covenant, the Trinity partaking, abiding in your very soul and you partaking in the divine life of the eternal covenant. I want to read a section of Lumen Gentium. It's a Vatican II document from Pope, now, now Pope St. Paul VI. I'll read two sections, and, and, and it really wraps up this chapter beautifully. It summates the whole chapter of Romans 6. Lumen Gentium number four. When the work which the Father gave the Son to do on earth was accomplished, the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost in order that he might continually sanctify the church. And thus, all those who believe would have access through Christ to one spirit to the Father. He is the spirit of life, a fountain of water springing up to life eternal, to men dead in sin. The Father gives life through him until in Christ he belongs to life their mortal bodies. The spirit dwells in the church and in the hearts of the faithful as a temple. And them he prays on their behalf and bears witness to the fact that they are adopted sons and daughters. The church, which the Spirit guides in way of all truth, and which he unified in communion and in works of ministry, he both equips and directs with hierarchical and charismatic gifts and adorns with his fruits. By the power of the gospel, he makes the church keep the freshness of youth uninterruptedly. He renews it and leads it to perfect union with its spouse. The spirit and the bride both say to Jesus, the Lord, come. Thus, the church has been seen as a people made one with the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful summation. Now listen to Lumen Gentium number seven. In the human nature, united to himself, the Son of God, by overcoming death through his own death and resurrection, redeemed man and remolded him into a new creation by communicating his spirit. Christ made his brothers and sisters called together from all nations, mystically the components of his own body. In that body, the life of Christ is poured into the believers who through the sacraments are united in a hidden and real way to Christ who suffered and was glorified. Through baptism, we are formed in the likeness of Christ. For one spirit, we were baptized into one body. And in the sacred rite, a oneness with Christ's death and resurrection is both symbolized and brought about. And then he quotes Paul six, uh, Romans 6, for we were buried with him by means of baptism into death. And if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall so be so in the likeness of his resurrection also. Really partaking in the body of the Lord in the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, we are taken up into communion with him and with one another. Because the bread is one, we though many are one body, all of us who partake of the one bread. In this way, all of us are made members of his body. Paul tells us we are now under grace. Sin has no dominion over us. We're not under the law. We're under grace. You were baptized into the Trinity. You were submerged underwater. You died with Christ. God's love was poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to you. You were infused with sanctifying grace. You rose with Jesus Christ from death into a new life. You were a new creation. On the eighth day, you became a new son or daughter of God's promise. You now see permanent glory in this new covenant by the beautiful Trinity alive in your soul. Baptized into the Trinity, you're infused with sanctifying grace. You're able to once again enter into the life of the Trinity, partaking in the life of the Trinity right now, right here. Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea. He instructed the people to walk through 
death. This had to be scary. What if the sea closed? They're walking into death itself. But God promised a better life on the other side. They would be out of bondage. You must pass through death to be free of the bondage to sin. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because you are with us. Your rod and thy staff, they comfort us. We have to get through this valley of death. We live here in this fallen world and in this culture of death. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. We know you are with us, Jesus, with your rod and your staff that comfort us. Instead of belonging to this fallen world where Satan is prince, we belong to a kingdom not of this world. Jesus said, my kingship is not of this world. God's love was poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who was given you. You were infused with grace. It was the greatest gift of your life. The fruit of baptism or baptismal grace is a rich reality that includes forgiveness of original sin and all personal sin, birth into new life, by which man becomes an adoptive son of God, a member of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit. By this very fact, the person baptized is incorporated into the church, into the body of Christ, and made a sharer in the priesthood of Christ. Now, when you were a little baby, you were a little vessel. Your soul was totally full of sanctifying grace, forgiveness of all original sin, forgiveness of any personal sins, which you most likely had none at that time. But you're continually being sanctified by God's grace. Your soul is able to expand and hold more and more and more of God's infinite grace, his infinite love. And that's what holiness is, God's love inside of you. More and more and more love in your vessel, your soul just expanding and expanding with the infinite love of God. Don't waste your baptismal grace. The one thing God will never refuse you of is if you ask for more and more of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Trinity may dwell in a soul for many years before the soul becomes conscious of the gift that had been given in it at baptism. Some of our kids, some of our spouses, some people we love. The baptism seals the Christian with an indelible spiritual mark. It incorporates us into Christ. It configures us to Christ. It's an indelible spiritual mark that we belong to Christ. No sin can ever erase this mark. Even if sin prevents baptism from bearing all the fruits of salvation, given once for all, baptism cannot be repeated. The Holy Spirit has marked us with a seal of the Lord for the day of redemption. Baptism indeed is the seal of eternal life fully partaking in the life of divine love, the life of the Trinity. And I'll end with this, the most perfect life with the most holy Trinity, this communion of life and love with the Trinity, with the Virgin Mary, all the angels, and the blessed is called heaven. Heaven is the ultimate end, the fulfillment of the deepest human longing and the state of supreme definitive happiness. And what helps us get there? Prayer, the sacraments. If you've got someone far away, pray for them. Make yourself holy so that, so that you can get to the throne room of heaven and, and intercede on their behalf. Work on your own holiness, your own sanctification. Ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise and thank you for this message tonight from St. Paul. We thank you that grace abounds and that we're free of the dominion of sin in our life and that we can partake with life in the Trinity now, in this eternal now, that you, our heaven, can start here and that you want to sanctify us and make us pure and holy. And that's where our true beatitude, our true happiness will lie. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. 
That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter six, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.